the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down to their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a, as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnants that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath. And from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. And will assemble the banished of Israel. And gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall, not, but, but they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hands against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. And strike into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnants that remains of his people, and as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So what is Advent? What is the season that we're celebrating we're beginning the season of Advent today. The word Advent simply means arrival, coming. This is a season that Christians have celebrated for over a millennia. 
a millennium, during Advent, we teach our hearts to do something we don't do well. Waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. As we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember He is coming again. And right now, we're called to wait. Each week, during the month of December, leading up to December 25th, we'll remember one word that helps us wait for the coming of Christ. Hope, peace, joy, and love. This is a season of tension. This is a season of, of waiting, anticipation. Even as you see the candles to our right, there is one candle that is lit, but there are four that are not. We're waiting. My wife, and, uh, my wife often says that Christians ought to learn to wait because so much of the Christian life is about waiting. The candles represent hope, peace, joy, and love, all things that Jesus brought to us in his first coming and that he will bring to us more fully in his second coming. Finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll light up the center candle, the Christ candle. This candle reminds us that Christmas is about waiting. But Christmas is also about promises being fulfilled. So today, we turn to the word hope. Unmet expectations produce disappointments. That, that's how disappointment is born. And we're about to go into a season flooded with expectations, aren't we? Some of us expect gifts. Others may expect rest. Others may expect fun. Others may just expect family to get along. Whatever the case may be, eventually we'll all face disappointment in one way or another. Some of us might not receive the gift we want. Some of us might be forgotten by those we love. Some of us might receive bad reports concerning our health, the health of a loved one. Some of us may have dreadful family reunions this Christmas. Disappointment is an expected part of a fallen world, plagued with sin and sinful people. Disappointment happens because we often place our hopes on foundations that are not sure. On the other hand of the spectrum, however, there is biblical hope. And this is what I want you to understand today. Though we will experience disappointment in Christmas, during Christmas, Christmas is ultimately about hope. And what is biblical hope? Biblical hope is a deep assurance that God will be faithful to his promises. And this, assurances, and this assurance affects the way we walk today. So as we consider Isaiah 11, 
my prayer for you is that your faith would be built up and that your faith would would help you walk in godliness during this season. But before we break the text apart, before we dig into the text, let me give you just a brief background of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that lived about 700 years before Jesus. He was a contemporary of the prophet Micah and the and king Hezekiah. During his ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel was under great threat by the Assyrians. They would be dominated and they would be sent into exile. Why? Because they were disobedient. Because they were called to obey the law of God, but they didn't. Because of that, the Assyrians were knocking at their door. But the message of Isaiah is that the southern kingdom, which he was a prophet to, should not think of themselves as faithful or deserving of God's favor because they too would be banished from the promised land and for the same reason, disobedience. Breaking the covenant they had with the Lord. Receiving the good law of God and saying, no thanks. Isaiah was tasked with the job of delivering this message to the people. Isaiah's message is not, repent from your sin or you will be punished. His message was, you will be punished. You will be punished for your sin, but turn to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust His promises. And this is still the message for us today, isn't it? Trust the Lord. Rest in the Lord. His promises are your only source of hope. One feature that we see in this text is the overlapping of short-term and long-term prophecies. A few of these prophecies were fulfilled upon the first coming of Christ. These are short-term fulfillment prophecies. But most of these promises will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. These are long-term fulfillment prophecies. So although, although this text was directed towards Israel about the coming of King Jesus... These promises still bear weight for us today because they've already been fulfilled, but not yet completely. It's kind of, it's kind of like looking at a chain of mountains. I don't know if you've ever driven into Tennessee and have seen the Smoky Mountains afar, right? Uh, from afar, they, it, it looks like just a painting and all the mountains are equidistant. You, but as you drive through them, you start realizing you want you'll go over one mountain, but there's another one coming, and there's another one coming. So, so this is this is how these prophecies look 
right? At, at first, when you look at the passage here in, in Isaiah 11, it looks like one thing all together. But as we experience them, as people have experienced them, the people of God have experienced them, that they come, they come as mountains as you approach them. Well, here's what is encouraging about this. Jesus has fulfilled so many of the promises that we see in our text today that we can truly hope, that we can truly expect that He will fulfill all of them. Right? But in so many ways, the first coming of Jesus was a deposit being made, and in His second coming is the full promise, fully blown for us. My goal with this message today is to help you overcome disappointment by placing your hope, your expectations on the promises of God rather than on the promises of men. So as we work through our text today, we're going to see three promises we're called to hope on. We're to hope in a righteous ruler. We're to hope in a renewed earth. And we're to hope in a in hope in restored relationships. So let's consider first the righteous ruler. God's first promise in this passage is that he would send a ruler to rule over the world. At this point, he does not give us the name of the ruler, but he describes him. And what would this ruler be like? Well, first, this ruler would be humble. Look at verse 1. He would come as a shoot from a stump. From a dead tree. In Isaiah 5, God compares Israel to a vineyard that bears sour grapes. He says, I am going to chop you down. All that will be left is a stump. But a few chapters later, he promises out of that stump there would come shoot. There would come life. Life from the dead. Paul in Romans 15 tells us that this shoot is Jesus Christ. Then he says that this is the stump of Jesse. But who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of King David. But then why not just say that? Well, because Isaiah wants to emphasize this ruler's unassuming beginning. Not even his name is mentioned here. He would not be a great ruler because he came from a powerful family or he had a great name. He would be a great ruler because he would be filled by the Spirit. Look at verse 2, this ruler would be spirit-filled. He's filled with the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Did you notice that we're giving, you were given seven words to describe the Spirit in verse 2? This is symbolic. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven is a number of perfection. This ruler is perfectly filled with the spirit of the Lord. 
unlike us who are called to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, this ruler had no ultimate struggle in the flesh because the spirit indwelled him perfectly. There's much that can be said here about how these words bear up. But we won't get into that right now. But here's what I want you to understand that this description is pointing us to. This, spirit, this, this ruler, he is empowered by the Lord and is willing and able to rule. His humility does not mean that he is weak. He is mighty and he's wise. But not only that, this ruler is godly. Look at the first line in verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Notice that word there, delight. He doesn't just fear the Lord. He loves the fear of the Lord. Have you ever been, have you ever met someone who just does the bare minimum to get by? Have you ever been served by someone that just does the bare minimum to get by? Sometimes we do the bare minimum to get by, don't we? Well, but not this ruler. He is not like us. This ruler is different. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He loves to do his will. Obeying God is not a burden for this ruler. It is a pleasure. It is a privilege. This ruler would wake up every morning and say, in what ways can I obey the Lord today? He loves to do the will of the Father. This ruler is here being pitted against Israel. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet, just a couple of generations later, said about the people of Israel. Jeremiah 5, 23 and 24, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone astray and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. And that is what made this ruler necessary. That no one, no one on earth seeks the Lord. No one does good. This is true of Israel. This is true of us apart from the grace of God. We do not look to the Lord by nature. And seek to do this his will. But now listen to what Jesus would say about himself. John 8, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the ruler. But not only that, this ruler would be just. This ruler would be just. Look at the second half of verse this ruler does not judge according to his senses what he sees or what he hears he's not swayed by appearances he's not swayed by things like bribes instead he judges with righteousness equity 
defending the weak and punishing the wicked. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God dwells, indwells him perfectly. What an incredible resume this ruler has. Who can this ruler be? Well, we know that this is Jesus, right? This is a messianic promise. Paul in Romans 15 tells us, the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse is Jesus Christ himself, the true and better David, David's son, and yet David's Lord. He is perfectly humble, perfectly filled, perfectly godly, perfectly just. His kingdom is here among us this morning, expanding as we hear his word and heed it. And yet, we still hope for a day when his rule would be fulfilled in all the earth. Now, remember what I said earlier. Biblical hope affects the way we ought to live today. Hope in a righteous ruler, hope in the eternal ruling of Christ in all his creations should affect the way we live today. But how? Well, first, let me say this to you. Jesus is the righteous ruler of the whole universe, like it or not. Right? W whether you believe that or not, it is true that he is the ruler of the whole universe. This is not up for debate. We all have sinned, meaning we all, we have all in different ways rebelled against King Jesus. And the righteous ruler will bring a righteous charge against us. Okay, so when we say that Jesus is a righteous ruler, because of our sinful nature, that should cause us, first of all, to fear. So no one can stand indifferently before Jesus. No one can stand before Jesus and say, you are the ruler of the part of the universe that I don't belong to, but you don't rule over me. Jesus rules over all creation. So when we think that we are okay with Jesus because we are ignoring him, that would be akin to someone trying to escape a grizzly bear by hiding under a maple leaf. That is ridiculous. It doesn't work. You will be found out. The bear will find you out and you will be destroyed. Likewise, my friends, you will stand before King Jesus one day. And he will bring a righteous charge before you. But he's saying to you right now, escape my coming judgment. How? By confessing your sins and entrusting your whole life to him. But the story of King Jesus, the righteous judge, is a shocking story. Why? Because Jesus is the judge. It is before his throne will stand. But he was also judged. 
not for his own sins, but for our sins. The sins of all who believe in him and have received him. So at the end of the day, the only question that matters is, do you believe that Jesus died and paid for your sins? Do you believe that this king gave his life for you? Do you believe that he rose again and now rules the world? Do you believe that the judge of all the earth is also the justifier of all who believe in him? Friends, the time, the time to find refuge in Jesus is right now. This is why he came. He fulfilled some promises, made more promises, and he said, I'm coming again. So that we could say that today is the day of salvation. So that we could hear this message today, repent from our sins, Turn to him and be spared the judgment to come. So friends, if you're not a believer among us, maybe you walked into this place today because it's Christmas season. Maybe you walk into this place today because you want to please someone. Friends, the message that God has for you, this message was tailored to you from God is today is the day of salvation for you. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Turn to Jesus, confess your sins and find shelter in him but how should we but how should we who believe in jesus live in light of the fact that he's a righteous ruler how should the fact that jesus is a righteous ruler affect the lives of those who are his those who already believe in him those who have already confessed their sins and have already trusted in him for eternal life How many of you have done New Year's resolutions before? It's coming again, isn't it? I'm going to give you your New Year's resolutions. I'm going to give you three, okay? Three New Year's resolutions, okay? I want you to prayerfully consider these three for the year of 2023. Number one, trust Jesus. Number two, this has to follow, okay? This has to follow one. If you don't do one, number two doesn't work. Number one, trust Jesus. Number two, Be like Jesus. Number three, there's no number three. It's only two. That's the Christian life. We trust in Jesus. We seek to be like him. So we trust in Jesus. Do not put your hope in car or in horses. But trust Jesus. Trust that he rules the earth with truth and grace. Don't put your ultimate trust in politics. Or in the democratic process. Don't put your ultimate trust in the White House or in the Supreme Court. Trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. It may seem like this world has gone astray. And it is out of control. But it has not. Jesus is in perfect control of all things right now. It is actually under this world. It is actually under the perfect control of King Jesus. But also... Be like Jesus. Look at his list of attributes. He's humble. He's spirit-filled. He's godly. He's just. Do you yearn to live in light of these attributes? Do you yearn to be like Christ? Do these characteristics describe you? Are they growing in you today, Christian? Are you growing in the likeness of Christ? Can you say to your children... Okay, can you say to your children, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ? 
Will our interactions with family and friends this holiday season be characterized by humility? Will those who know us best look at us this season and say, I can see that he or she has grown in humility this year. Here's a great thing that you can do this month. If you're really concerned in growing in Christ-likeness, okay? Here's a great thing you can do. Go around asking your family and close friends, have you noticed growth in humility in my life this past year? Or do you think I'm growing in godliness? And ask them, please give me the most honest answer you can give me. Accept their answer and trust the Lord. By faith, we grow from glory to glory. But this growth is not just a concept. The Christian life is not just a concept. It must be real. It must be palpable. It must be noticeable. Friends, let us turn now <clears throat> to the hope in a renewed earth. We started with a new ruler, but now we have a new earth. This ruler is so powerful that his rule includes even the renewal of the animal world. Have you ever seen those animal shows on TV? You know, those shows where the lion chases the gazelle? And those are intense, I know. Everyone watches. And what is everybody hoping for? Everybody's hoping that the gazelle would get away. And finally, when the gazelle gets away, some guy, we usually with a British accent, will say, and the lion hasn't eaten in 30 days, and the lion will likely die of starvation soon. And then you feel bad. You think, no, great, now there's a di lion dying somewhere in Africa, and it's my fault. Those shows will not play in this renewed earth. Th th this, is, this is paradise done right. Verses 6 through 9 is a renewal of paradise, but this paradise is not ruled by King Adam because King Adam failed. This paradise is ruled by King Jesus. The picture here is that even the animals subject themselves to the ruling of this kingdom. There is no death in this kingdom. This is a world at peace. This is a world where even the animal world, prey and predator, lie down together. This is a world where children are not at risk. Children don't die in this world. Instead, they lead lions and leopards and play with cobras. This is a world that is not broken. This section here is not merely talking about an end of sin. A leopard is not sinning when it kills a goat or a lion when he kills a calf. But this world is filled with violence. These verses are talking about the end of brokenness. 
Sinfulness is faithless rebellion against God. Brokenness is the consequences of this rebellion. Brokenness is why hurricanes exist. Brokenness is why viruses exist. Brokenness is why cancer, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, heart attacks, ulcers, broken bones exist. Brokenness is the reason why sometimes we feel like our bodies are fighting against us. Do you feel broken today? So does creation. Creation longs for the picture here of verses 6 through 9. Listen to Romans 8, 20 through 21. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, brokenness, and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Creation is saying no more. No more bondage to the consequences of sin. You know what creation is saying. Creation is saying what we ought to be saying every day. Come, Lord Jesus, make all things new. Come complete the good work you begun. Come and rule over us forever. Creation is in a perpetual season of Advent. But when will this happen? Look at the second half of verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will happen when the knowledge of the gospel saturates the earth. This is why we are about preaching the gospel. This is why the most important thing we can do as a church is proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is why we're about missions. This is why we believe that the message of hope is the most important message we can share. Social activism is good, but it can only go so far. Brokenness will be overcome by the proclamation of the gospel. It is by the spread of the knowledge of God through all the earth that creation will be set free from its curse. So how should this hope of a renewed earth affect our lives today? Well, first, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. But how will it be filled with the knowledge of the Lord if we don't send preachers to preach the gospel where the gospel is not known? Church family, during the month of December, Southern Baptist churches have to uh, uh, contribute or get to contribute to what is called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. This offering helps keep our missionaries in the field. None of this offering stays at this church. None of this offering stays stateside. It all goes overseas towards our missionaries. Mark and Vester Souter, our missionary to the deaf peoples, Robbie and Rachel, missionaries in South Asia and India. Matthew and Olivia Dina, our missionaries in Asia. Dustin and Brittany Tanner, our missionaries in West Africa. And Julia Evans, our missionary in the North African and Middle Eastern region of the world. We list them every week in our prayer guide we pass on Wednesday evenings. Prayerfully consider giving sacrificially to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this year. Our church has historically 
being very generous towards this offering. I want you to understand this. It is a privilege to be a part of filling the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. But second, how should this promise of a renewed earth encourage us? Do you feel brokenness in your own body today? Are you in pain right now? Are you dealing with a serious diagnosis or a serious illness? Listen to these verses. Isaiah 40, 33. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Things will change. If you trust in the Lord, all of this will be gone. All your pain and suffering will dissipate. In the world to come, you're not going to be just a little better than you are right now. You will be awesome. And I don't use that word lightly. You will be able to dunk better than LeBron James, run faster than Usain Bolt, and swim better than Michael Phelps. And that's not a joke. It is true. Because your body will be then as it was supposed to be all along. So friend, if you are suffering right now, and if you're not, let me tell you, you will. So, so listen to this. If you're suffering right now, take heart, hope in the world to come. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary, I love this. Okay, Paul just, just, just said that whatever pain you're going through right now is light and momentary. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, why does he say that it's light and momentary? Because compared with the glory of eternal life with Christ... We'll barely even remember the pain. We'll barely even remember. So, weary saints, take heart. Because your suffering is not in vain. Your suffering is building for you a future glory. And it will not last forever. Now turn with me to... Our last point, our hope in restored relationships. Did you catch a subtle yet important shift in verse 10? In verse 1, the hope comes from the shoot of Jesse. In verse 10, it is not the shoot, but the root of Jesse. What is the point of this? Don't confuse humility with powerlessness. Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. He's powerful. He will rule. 
over all peoples. Peoples from all walks of life will be attracted to this ruler. In verses 10 and 12, Gentiles will come to look and inquire about Christ. In verses 11 and 12, the faithful remnant of Israel will be restored again, like a reverse exodus. Friends, this is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. That in him, all of the peoples of the earth would be blessed. This is a full restoration of the earth. We'll all look to Jesus and find hope in him. And all will live in this perfect place. This is an idyllic land. It is like paradise. It is a new Eden. This is what the Bible calls the Jerusalem from above. The new earth. After all, the whole earth, remember that? The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. The whole earth will be this new paradise. This place is so perfect that even the relationships between peoples are restored. And how does God restore relationships? He removes the hostility from among his people. Look at verse 13. Ephraim, referring to the northern kingdom, and Judah, referring to the southern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim is jealous of Judah. Ephraim, Ephraim, um, Ephraim was uh, teaming up with its captor, Assyria, in order to do what? Harass Judah. But there's a promise here, isn't there? That will change. Christ will bring peace to Israel. We're still waiting for this fulfillment. But upon Christ's return, all Israel will be saved. That is a promise. And this is a promise that because of this salvation, relationships would be restored. Friends, God can change even the hardest of hearts. And the best way that God restores relationships is by bringing those who are opposed to one another to him, to himself. Do you need to be reconciled with a brother or a sister today? Are you offended or have you offended someone in this room? Will you seek them out? And by the power of God and his spirit be reconciled to them? Children, are you harboring? Are you harboring anger in your heart towards your parents? Children of all, age by the, all ages, by the way. Do you harbor bitterness in your heart towards them? Why don't you seek out your parents and look for reconciliation in them? Speak to them. Seek to forgive and be forgiven. Husbands, are you at odds with your wives? Wives, are you at odds with your husbands? You need reconciliation. You need to have faith in the righteous ruler and look to him who is able 
to bring together those who are apart. You need the ruler's rule in your hearts. I put in your outline a list of verses that will help you seek reconciliation with anyone who you may be at odds with. If you're able to, I would actually encourage you to seek out someone who you may need reconciliation with and read through these verses with that person. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Galatians 6, 2, Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, and Philippians 2, 3 through 4. But not only does God bring together those who are His in Himself and promotes reconciliation in this way, but He also destroys the opposition of His enemies. He destroys His enemies. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Friends, all who oppose Christ will find themselves facing a terrible judgment. God in His justice will punish all who reject His Son. But God's last word for his people is always a word of hope. Look at verse 16. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnants that remains of his people and there, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. God provides a highway for his people to return to him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus Christ is that highway. The hope of Christmas has a name. It is Jesus. Our lives won't change if we get a perfect gift. Our lives won't change if we have a perfect vacation or a family reunion that is up to our standards. Our lives won't even change if we have a clean bill of health. These things are like grass. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives will change if at Christmas we receive Christ. The true hope of Christmas. Friends, as you go into this Christmas season, as you prepare your hearts during this Advent season, be ready to face disappointments in one way or another, perhaps in many ways. People will disappoint you. Gifts will disappoint you. Parties will disappoint you. But God didn't make us for this world. He made us for the world to come. And God's eternal promises never disappoint. Would you pray with me? Father, help us look to Christ and find in Him all the hope that we need. Lord, help us not trust in the things of this world, but help us hope and trust in the just ruler in the promises of a renewed earth to come and in the promises of restored relationships in christ we pray these things in the name of jesus amen